0: Yes, And we're back for episode two of the witchery podcast. My god already episode two season two. This is quite scary.
1: Quite exciting I think.
0: Oh very exciting. (laughs) I'm just like we've just been talking now for 15 episodes. Just talking.
1: Just talking horror. Just just chatting rubbish. Just chatting rubbish. And to think that the idea was pretty much like we had the idea about a year ago to do a podcast to yeah. talk about horror. So, yeah. We made it yeah, yes. this far. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We've at least got to season two, episode two. That's something to be proud of, isn't it? That's something to be proud of. Oh, my goodness me.
1: Considering a fucking global panda and... Uh, panda. You know, <laughs> <load>. <laughs> the panda. The, the panda that panda. has just ruined the world. The global panda. Oh, the global panda. panda. And uh, load shedding in South Africa. We used Africa. to call it the panini, didn't you? You call it the panini, the global panini. The global panini, pepperoni, panda, Panasonic, panorama, panacotta. Pana <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, panavision. Oh, there we go. Oh my goodness. It, it's, it's a lot of pan, isn't it? It's a lot of pan, panning the world. Yeah, it's a lot of shit. It's a lot of shit, but we're here talking <laughs> horror, so let's go, let's move into what we're discussing this week. So, shall I shall I get started, Jess?
1: Shall I get started? Yes, let's jump right into it. I can't wait to hear what we're doing this week.
0: <gasps>
1: well, this this one's a bit of a classic, you see, and I think as
0: soon as I start mentioning the sort of the little motifs, the little visual things that go on, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. A shower curtain, blood circling a plug hole, Janet Lee's gut-wrenching and, likely, gut-spilling scream, and a killer wielding a knife while wearing his mother's dress and a grey wig. Yes, guys, it is just your average overnight stay at the Bates Motel. Of course, we're talking about Psycho! Yay, I've been looking forward to this one in a weird, twisted kind of way. (laughs) I mean, who who doesn't love a a, a mother-fixated lunatic? Slash a murderer. I mean, everyone loves that. Uh, based at the Bates Motel, a place much like the Hotel California, the Eagles sang about in 1976. You can check in, you, rather, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Well, yeah, you never leave the Bates Motel if you stay there because you, you're dead, basically. You're dead. So this week, of course, we're talking about the seminal 1960 Hitchcock classic, Psycho, based actually on the 1959 novel of the same name by Robert Bloch. So another one, like Rosemary's Baby, a book to a film, very quickly, very quickly afterwards. So from Anthony Perkins, I think you all know him by now, his iconic performance, to the Gus Van Sant 90s remake, which we probably won't be talking about. Sorry, Vince Vaughn, that was shockingly bad. Through to the three-time Emmy-nominated Bates Motel series on a and um, Norman Bates and his Oedipus Complex have managed to capture the imagination of horror fans the world over for over 60 years. But did you know that the fictional Norman Bates that we all know and love? Don't know if we can say we love him. We all know him. <laughs> did you know that he might not be so fictional after all?
1: Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to hear the snow. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, Norman Bates being real, that mother dress and wig wearing lunatic running around chopping up people in a shower he could be real yes sadly he could be so when the film actually started out life as a book so the little story like I said much like Rosemary's Baby by Robert Block it was written and published in 1959 so Robert Block was uh, an American writer and screenwriter he wrote hundreds of short stories and about 30 novels he was actually so you're, you must be quite familiar with H.P. Lovecraft Jess a little bit of, of H.P. Lovecraft who, who, isn't? who he was one of Exactly. He was one of the youngest members of the Lovecraft circle. So there was a Lovecraft circle and he was very much involved. In fact, he was actually a protege of H.P. Lovecraft, who was the first to really encourage his talent. So that's kind of oh, cool. Wow. So, yeah, so H.P. Lovecraft, isn't it? But you kind of see when you when you either read Psycho, the book, or, or you see the film, because obviously so many elements of the, the book are in there, you, you can kind of see that sort of slightly slightly spooky eerie supernatural vibe even though it is very much a slasher movie uh, the first of the slasher movies actually but um yeah it's got that vibe but anyway so he was into sort of cosmic horror and, and things like that but he later started writing crime and and pure horror stories dealing with more of a psychological approach so he wrote for pulp magazines like weird tales and and he was a contributor to science fiction fanzines and fandom in general And actually, this is interesting because this feeds into the film. In 2008, the Library of America actually selected an essay that Robert Block wrote called The Shambles of Ed Gein. Ed Gein? Ed Gein? I'm going to say Ed Gein. It's Ed Gein. Ed Gein, Gein, uh, which he wrote in 1962, for inclusion in its two-century retrospective of American true crime. Now, the reason I mention this is that Ed Gein may in fact feature in the podcast today, but we'll get to that. But Robert Block was kind of fascinated by him. But anyway, so he wrote the novel in 1959 of Psycho. The novel was given to, to a very, very astute, very bright um, British film director called Alfred Hitchcock, who immediately knew what to do with it. Uh, he actually immediately bought the rights as soon as he read it to develop the story into a film for just under $10,000. And that film became psycho so maybe I'll just give you a little bit of a synopsis of the film before we get going just what happens just to remind you um what do you think Jess do you need a reminder
1: I think we definitely need a reminder plus you know it's always fun to talk about films
0: Why not? So during a little bit of an afternoon tryst, a real estate secretary called Marion and her boyfriend, Sam, talk about not being able to get married. And she's a bit angry with him. And, you know, he's in debt. And basically, he's a complete loser. If you've seen this film, I don't know. He's like the worst character in it. It should be Norman Bates. I think it's actually this guy. He's awful. But um, she's pretty pissed off with him. And I wouldn't blame her because let's face it, sometimes, guys. Men are crap. Not all of you. Not all of you. But, you know, sometimes you are. But um, maybe I shouldn't say that. Sorry, guys. We love you all. Um, <laughs> but Marion is a bit pissed off with him. And she returns to work and decides because they can't get married because they're broke, she's got to steal some money. So she steals $40,000, which is entrusted to her as a deposit at the bank, and drives over to Sam's house in California. But en route, she quickly has to trade her car to sort of avoid suspicion um, and avoid this patrol officer who's after him. So on her way over to Sam's, she stops for the night at somewhere called the Bates Motel, which is located off the main highway. She meets Norman Bates, who's sort of a very, very shy, very, very sweet, but slightly, slightly sort of strange young man who runs the hotel. So she hears that as he sort of checking her in, he has to run back to the house and she can hear that he's having an argument with somebody, sounds like his mother about Marion being there so she's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be here but Norman returns, he brings her some food and apologises for his mother's outburst and basically starts telling her about his hobby, which is being a taxidermist I mean, that is going to completely make you feel comfortable, staying at a hotel with somebody who's obsessed with taxidermy Um, talks about his mother's illness and that You know, he's feeling a little bit, a little bit trapped and that he might want to escape the situation he's in. Anyway, Marion's like, okay, fine. Thanks for the food. See you later. But as she is basically sort of getting into the shower, trying to have a nice, relaxed night in the hotel, suddenly a shadowy figure appears, stabbing her to death in the shower, creating that very infamous, famous shower scene. Soon afterwards, mother, um, Norman's anguished voice is heard screaming, yelling, mother, mother, oh God, blood, blood. And he has to clean up the murder scene. So of course, we're all thinking, oh my goodness, Norman's mother has killed Marion. But it's an interesting thing because Marion is straight away in the film, you think she's the protagonist. So you think you're going to be with her throughout it. And Norman Bates is just the secondary character. But within what, about 15 minutes, she's gone and you're left with Norman Bates. But anyway, so he has to clean everything up in the hotel and he sinks Marion's car in a swamp. So Marion's sister is, arrives going like, where the hell is my is my sister, goes to see Sam. Um, and they, neither of them know where she is. So they get a private investigator to try and find her. And he actually manages to hunt down the Bates Motel and finds out she spent a night there so he goes to question Norman who's very nervous (laughs) and very odd because he's a little bit of a strange one um and he's immediately this private investigator suspicious about what Norman has done so when he finds out that Marion spoke to Norman's mother the private investigator's like I want to see your mother but Norman's like nope you're not meeting my mother so the private investi- investigator goes back to Marion's sister Leela and to Sam her boyfriend and says there's something going on there um, something going on with this mother um, I'm going to sorry he calls he calls them both he says there's something going on with this mother i'm going to try and find out what's going on but as he does of course he emerges he goes into the house and what emerges to stab him but um a shadowy figure again and he dies so so far marion dead and the private private investigator when sam and leela don't hear any more from the private investigator they get quite suspicious so sam goes to the hotel Um, And as he looks at the hotel, he sees this sort of like shadowy figure in the house and he thinks, oh, maybe that's the mother again. So freaking out, he calls the local sheriff who actually tells him that Norman's mother died in a murder suicide pact 10 years earlier. So they're like, what? That what? doesn't make any sense. No. Exactly. So the sheriff's <laughs> like, the private investigator has lied to you. There's no mother there. Um, He's probably just getting your money and running. Like, you can't trust these people. So Sam and Leela go to the hotel and they um try and distract Norman while Leela goes and sneaks into the house to find out what on earth is going on. So she goes into the house. Norman realizes what's going on and basically knocks Sam out and runs into the house after Leela. But as Leela's in there, she goes into the fruit cellar and discovers Norman's mother's mummified body. A very famous scene. She looks quite horrific. Uh, Leela screams and Norman emerges wearing his mother's clothes and a wig, enters the, the room and tries to stab her. Sam appears, though, and manages to subdue him. Then the police arrive and it's kind of like everyone, they're all saving the day. But a psychiatrist in one of the worst scenes in the film, the only bad scene in the film, (laughs) explains in a lot of exposition dump, basically, that uh, a very jealous Norman murdered his mother and her lover 10 years earlier. He mummified his mother's corpse and began treating it as if she was still alive. He then recreated his mother in his mind as an alternate personality, a jealous and possessive woman who um, basically... was was very jealous of any woman that came near Norman. When Norman is attracted to a woman, mother takes over. He'd already murdered two other young women before Marion and the private investigator was killed to hide his mother's crime. The the psychiatrist basically concludes that mother has now completely taken over Norman's personality. And at the very end, you see Norman Bates sitting in the jail cell. He gives a little wry smile and you see a flash of the mother's skull on his face. yeah. And then they retrieve Marion's car from the swamp and that's the film. So that's the film. A little bit screwy.
1: But it is, brilliant. but it's, it's fantastic. It is brilliant. Especially if you um, just think of all the, the themes that come through. And like you said, the the fact that you think that the protagonist is you're going to be with her for the entire film, but 15 minutes in, she's dead. Well, what, what you at it's least are. Yeah. It's, it's so many twists, so many turns. It's just such a well-told story. It's an amazing
0: story. And it's it has that... Now, this is the thing, so I'm sure you're all aware of, but before 1960, before Psycho, there was sort of a haze code of what you could and couldn't do in movies. And this film basically broke it. So the shower scene obviously became infamous because it was so gory. We'll talk about what actually created the gore later. but um, And seeing a woman basically naked in the shower, pretty much naked in the shower, being stabbed to death. Hadn't really been seen in a mainstream film, in a very popular film like that before. But Hitchcock broke that code, and it was basically the first slasher film.
1: So without Psycho, we probably wouldn't have Scream and all of the other slashes that we love. That's true. It was groundbreaking for so many reasons, not just from the, the storytelling aspect, but because, like you said, the, the slasher aspect.
0: Yeah, it's a good it's and a good movie. it spawned it's a great movie i mean it's a classic
1: it's (laughs) one of hitch it's one of
0: hitchcock's classics um as we said before it it's been remade into this terrible gus van sant film we won't talk about and of course (laughs) bakes motel which is a great series with vera farmega and i've forgotten the name of the lead actor he's also in the good doctor very good actor what is his name he's very good playing norman Mm. oh my goodness i'm so sorry young man (laughs) who plays norman (laughs) You're very good.
1: I've forgotten your name. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to Google it in the meantime. Let me check IMDb. Yay.
0: Jess and Google. Well, <laughs> we have to remember Vera because Vera is just the best. Come on. The Conjuring Queen. Vera it. Anyway, so um, Block wrote two more sequels. So he wrote Psycho 2 in 1982 and Psycho House in 1990. So after the film was released, it became a big success. And Anthony Perkins became kind of the 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 figurehead for all all crazy crazy killers um those two books came out um but in psycho 2 you've got norman bates escaping the asylum disguised as a nun making his way to hollywood (laughs) interesting storyline and then in psycho house the murders begin again when the bates motel is reopened as a tourist attraction Um, so there was also a fourth installment titled Robert Block's Psycho Sanitarium, which wasn't written by Robert Block because he would passed away in in 2016. It was written in 2016 by, he hadn't passed away in 2016, sorry. The book was written in 2016 by Chet Williamson. And it's set between the events of the original novel and Psycho 2, recounting the events which took place in the state hospital for the criminally insane where Norman Bates was a patient. So that's, that's what happened on the literary side. Psycho carried on. But let's talk about the making of the film quickly. So do you know much about the background of the film, Jess? I actually don't. Let me tell you then. Um, You've obviously seen quite a few Alfred Hitchcock films, I'm guessing, because they're always on TV. They're always around.
1: They always are. And they are amazing. Sorry, my Mac wants to update itself now. Why now? <laughs> no, not now. They always do that.
0: Always <sighs> when we're recording a podcast, it's either something to do with my computer or something to do with Jess's. It's always like they want to thwart us, the bastards. The bastards want to thwart us. But it's The so ghost good. in the machine. The ghost in the machine. The Norman Bates in the machine today. That's what it is. The Norman Ooh. Bates in the machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Through the winter of 1959 and the early summer of 1960, Lovely Alfred Hitchcock was working in a very small TV production lot outside Hollywood and he wouldn't tell anybody what was going on. He had a small group of talented actors and actresses um, working on a bit of a shocking film. So he kept everything quite secure and under wraps. But until late May 1960, he threw the doors open and invited cameras in to make a tantalising trailer for this secret project that he actually narrated himself. And what he'd done was he'd sort of been working on, on this, this secret film, which had got some technical challenges, a few budget problems, and the movie censors were getting very suspicious about what he was working on because they started to work out that there were going to be scenes potentially of fornication, murder, and why was there blood in a bathroom? What was going on of course he was making psycho everybody wanted to know what was going on there was a big sort of public mystery as well even the public wanted to know what is this latest project that alfred hitchcock's working on but the film critics when they finally got to see it um no sorry not they weren't able to see it sorry is what i was trying to say the film critics weren't happy so while the public were excited they weren't given the opportunity to get any advanced screenings of this film which they always thought was was possible. So they got quite sort of uppity about Alfred Hitchcock and um, were quite scathing about him. So when the film actually came out, they'd already built up this image that, oh, he's working on something. He thinks he's too good for us. So they were actually quite damning about Psycho when they first got to see it, saying it wasn't his best. um, It was gimmicky and in bad taste. But though the critics said this, when the public saw Psycho, they went crazy for it. It was the first time, I think, really, that you'd seen murder in this way on screen, Uh, a very beautiful woman in sort of seemingly to be the protagonist who's then murdered quickly, and this very strange, very quiet, seemingly shy young man who's a secret psycho. So everybody went crazy for this film, and it became the most profitable black and white movie of all time. And it basically was the highest grossing film in Hitchcock's career, so it went huge. Did you know that actually psycho changed the rules for hollywood a little bit because of this censorship thing so because beforehand there was this haze code as we mentioned before uh you there were certain things you couldn't do on screen and prohibition can't speak prohibition era kind of censorship that left a lot of boundaries on what the, the movie industry could do on screen what you could see um he basically broke all of that away he kind of bulldozed through it and it meant that the success of Psycho meant that other filmmakers were like, well, I can do this now too. Screw this code. I can go out and do <laughs> slasher films, horror films. And of course, that kind of paved the way for then things like, obviously, Rosemary's Baby that came up, Halloween, Silence of the Lambs, all of these films. So you started to see killers on screen um, more than you'd ever done before, Just kind of cool. That
1: is kind of cool. And to think that it took um, one person to make all these
0: changes. Yeah, because it was it's that sort of thing, isn't it, in cinema of um, particularly then, particularly back in the 50s, you had to adhere to this certain code. Oh, women can't watch these things, they'll be too sensitive. Or oh, children can't watch. There was a very strong censorship thing that has kind of broken down. Obviously, we've still got censorship, but with streaming devices and things like that, people can watch anything they want. Of course, at the time, it was much more restricted. So to see this in the cinema, to be able to see this kind of (laughs) murder going on was kind of tantalizing, tantalizing. Um, Psycho became a massive hit, dominated the theaters for all of the rest of 1960. And it kind of became like a defining event of the 60s, like Rosemary's Baby did in many ways, challenging taboos about sex and violence. And yeah, all it did was it just um, it, it started from this secret little project going on, on on a lot in Hollywood that Alfred Hitchcock wouldn't let people near. So that's what we're going on. But yeah, anyway, it's one of the most successful horror films of all time. It cemented Alfred Hitchcock as an author. Uh, yeah, Psycho is phenomenal. Do you want to know some facts about the film? Of the course. Filming. Yeah, so... <laughs> some Bring it, odd let's things. Hear some facts. Yeah, let's, let's hear some facts going on now. Luckily, it wasn't sort of too horrific on set. There were a few things that made you kind of go, mm, but it wasn't too horrific on set. A bit like Candyman last week, you know, Nia da Costa, She had a bit of a smooth sailing ship for her set this film set wasn't too bad considering it's actually the events that inspire it that we're going to get to, but figured you might be interested in these things. So the, sh- the the very famous shower scene took a week to film a week, a week. Um, Yep. <laughs> because, and so wow. basically Janet Lee was like, wow, get me out of this frigging shower because they wanted it to be done so perfectly. Um, The shower scenes. So Janet Lee was only on set for three weeks and, The one scene she was in with the shower took a week. So that's a third of her filming time spent on that because they wanted it to be so precise, you know, all of the exact angle of the knife and things like that and the blood. It required 78 different camera setups and 52 cuts. So yeah, for a short
1: scene. It took a lot of effort, but it's one of the most memorable scenes, not just in in Psycho, but in cinematic history. That scene is so um iconic for lack of a better word
0: isn't it i mean it's been parodied in things like the simpsons and loads of other comedies it's it's a notorious scene everyone knows it. i think a lot of kids even know they haven't seen psycho they're kind of aware of the film people know where this scene comes from and actually 78 different camera setups and 52 cuts that actually became 7852 a documentary all about the shower scene which we'll talk about later on but yeah it's a it was a very very um, famous part of of film history the shower scene took a week to film uh hitchcock actually deferred his salary to get the movie made so it was on made on a budget of just 806947 uh, $1000 basically and um hitchcock said i want to make this film properly so he deferred his fee he was going to get 250000 dollars as a salary and instead accepted 60% of the movie's box office profits which actually was um great for him so paramount who made it thought ah, it's going to be a failure like he's not going to make anything from this so yeah he ended up with 15 million Dollars for his gamble. So instead of two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, he got fifteen million.
1: That's a. I'd rather take the fifteen million. Thank you very much. So and game, do you know what that would be that worth paid today?
0: Off. A gamble that paid off. And do you know what that would be worth today? hundred and thirty million dollars. He made $130 hundred and thirty million effectively dollars from Psycho. Good, good wow. um, planning there, Hitchcock. Well, he could. Well, he probably did know. He probably knew the film was going to be a hit because he made yeah. it. So. Exactly. Yeah. That's one way to back yourself. Exactly. Walt Disney refused to let Hitchcock film at Disneyland after he saw Psycho. He was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this is, he said it was disgusting. He was so appalled by it. He, um, so basically, um, Hitchcock wanted to make a movie in Disneyland with Ernest Lehman, who he wrote North by Northwest with. Um, and dis- uh, Walt Disney was like, absolutely no way. The film is disgusting. I'm not letting you near it not letting you near my baby so they gave up on the film it was going to be something um sort of set in disneyland and then shifting to a location on a cruise ship but they they couldn't do that afterwards so it didn't happen the infamous shower scene the blood that was used do you know what they used for blood this is awesome no idea chocolate syrup because it's black and white They could use it. The best consistency, he tried lots of different things out, Hitchcock. And the best thing on camera to look like blood was Bosco chocolate syrup. (laughs) That's insane. Yep. (laughs) So if you're watching Psycho and you suddenly get a craving for a hot fudge sundae, you will know why. It's because Bosco chocolate syrup makes the blood in the film.
1: I have a craving for a hot chocolate sundae now. Thank you very much.
0: I know so do I and it's only like nine forty-nine in the morning for me and like, <laughs> I could do this breakfast um, of champions
1: what you're talking about
0: breakfast of champions so Anthony Perkins lovely actor who played Norman Bates refused to talk about the movie for years after it's released so of course he's going to be always known as Norman Bates poor old Anthony but um, you, you can't You can't say he isn't typecast by that, wasn't typecast by it, but what a role to be typecast by. Yeah. Phenomenal role. And he was amazing in it. But he's always going to be associated with Psycho. And unfortunately, of course, that then meant he was typecast for years after Psycho's released. He couldn't get, though he was very handsome, you know, he was in that prime of his life, very young man to get lots of leading man roles. He didn't get those dashing leading man roles because everyone saw him as Norman Bates. So he then wouldn't talk about the film afterwards because he was kind of quite angry about it. Uh, But years later, particularly by 1983, when he actually reprised the role for Psycho 2, he was more comfortable. But sort of during the 60s and 70s, it was the time when his career really should have gone stratospheric and everyone just thought he was Norman Bates. Oh, poor Anthony. Um, Did you know that Alfred Hitchcock has a cameo in Psycho? I did know that. I just can't remember the cameo. <laughs> um he basically turns up seven minutes into the film as a man wearing a cowboy hat outside Marion's office. <laughs> you know, when she goes to steal the money and then has to go off on a on a crime spree and then hide and then gets murdered by Norman Bates. Yeah, outside her office he's wearing a cowboy hat. So you can scan him and see him. He's actually Hitchcock was in uh forty out of his fifty two surviving films. He had a cameo in, which is great. I mean, That's great. great. Why not? Why not? He made it he's got every right exactly this is funny oh Jess, this is funny it's the first major american film to feature a flushing toilet
1: (laughs) (laughs) seriously Uh, american sensibilities
0: (laughs) exactly exactly so the screenwriter joe joseph stefano was absolutely hell-bent and i love this he just was so determined he wanted to have a movie featuring a flushing toilet to accentuate the film's sense of realism despite the fact that no American film had ever done so before. So he thought, you know, we, we need some realism here. You gonna have a flush a flushing toilet. So um, Hitchcock, of course, always one to try new things, went, yeah, great. Let's do this. Um, but he said, it's got to be a condition that you make this an organic part of a story. We can't just throw it in for no reason. So he wrote the scene where Marion counts the stolen money and flushes the paper down the toilet. So when she's stolen the $40,000, makes it a vital part of the story so you get to see the flushing of the toilet because the paper's going down so yeah but apparently it was shocking to audiences of the time (laughs) so of course you know a a murder's not bad enough you need a flushing toilet as well to shock you but yeah people were a bit shocked by flushing loo I hate a flushing loo wow it's quite funny (laughs) are you scared of flushing toilets I mean I suppose it depends what's in them (laughs) whether you're scared or not but uh yeah interesting for people to be so horrified by seeing a flushing a flushing dog, well, ha- have you
1: have you heard of Pinky Pinky? It, no, it, it's a South African it's a South African urban legend. Please tell us. <laughs> so, no, I want to know it if now. You're in a toilet, you'll say Pinky Pinky a few times, and then like this, I can't remember the exact thing, um, but yeah, basically, it's it's a monster that that comes up through the um, through the toilets. To get you. Kind of like Bloody Mary, but from the toilet. I can't remember the exact story. I'll I'll find it and um, I'll send it your way. There is a movie on Showmax. That's Max like Candyman. Called Pinky Pinky. Yeah. There's a but movie? Like very... Oh. There's a movie on
0: Showmax. To... Can you find if there's a true story behind Pinky Pinky so we can feature it on the podcast? That is insane. So in South Africa, you have a toilet monster.
1: We have a toilet monster. Yes.
0: Like Candyman in the loo. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Instead of saying it into a mirror, say it
1: on the toilet. That's amazing. I... So yeah, flashing toilets apparently scare. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm babbling. Um I will I'll do some I love research. It. Oh, I love it. Sorry. I love that. Pinky,
0: pinky. Guys, <laughs> pinky, this pinkie. is going to be the new thing now. Pinky, pinky. You're learning more from psycho to pinky, pinky. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now scared about going to the bathroom. I'm like, what if I say pinky, pinky just to kind of, you know, self-sabotage myself
1: <laughs> <when> something happens?
0: <laughs> just, why not? Just like, ooh, I'm just going to say it and see what happens. Because I, of course, have done the Bloody Mary thing. Thankfully, nothing happened. And I, of course, did the Candyman thing. Nothing happened. So I might have to do the pinky, pinky thing now.
1: Um, so yeah, Pinky Pinky is an urban legend in South Africa, kind of featureless boogeyman, a pink tokoloshi, half human, half creature who lives between the girls and boys' toilets at school.
0: Wow. Oh, but there's a film of it.
1: Yep. On, well, Mm. Showmax is like, um, the South African version of Netflix. Um, I haven't watched it. I've just seen it while browsing for stuff to watch.
0: Oh, we totally need to watch this. Oh my God, we, we totally need to watch this, guys. We need to watch this. Right, okay, Pinky Pinky, that's going to be somehow next on the list for something. We're going to do something about Pinky Pinky. <laughs> well, we'll look into that. We'll look into that. Um, I'll tell you some more psycho stories, just to, just so yes. so I don't delay too much, but Pinky Pinky, I'm fascinated. So <laughs> Janet Lee um was so horrified by being in a shower for so long um, and how she sort of was freaking out and realized how vulnerable people are in the shower after making that film she decided just to take baths for the rest of her life she actually said quote i stopped taking showers after psycho and i only take baths and when i'm someplace where i can only take a shower i make sure the doors and windows of the house are locked i also leave the bathroom door open and the shower curtain open i'm always facing the door watching no matter where the shower head is
1: wow so for the remaining a week of her life yeah. Well, she spent a week of her life in, in like filming that scene, which is horrific, it obviously would have traumatized her. I don't blame her.
0: No, I don't blame her either. I mean, quite frankly, it's that that is traumatizing because of course you already had poor old Tippy Hedron who'd been traumatized... well, was going to be traumatized three years later, sorry, on set of the birds in sixty three. So Hitchcock then traumatized another actress um by, you know, locking her in with loads of birds. And then three years prior, locked somebody in the shower. Amazing. I mean just Hitchcock, you're just, you're, you're a bit of a piece of work, but a, a great director. So there we go. Hitchcock fantastic made director. cinema managers, a fantastic director, he made cinema managers refuse entry after the movie started. So he basically said that it can't be interrupted. You can't disrupt the screening. It ha- People have to be in there from the start to the end. So yeah. They weren't allowed to, to let people in after the movie had started. The trailer is actually the first ever one for Psycho. The one that um, Hitchcock narrates, as mentioned earlier, is the longest trailer in movie history. Six and a half minutes long. Six and a half minutes. That's <laughs> like, That's a long trailer. That That is a very long trailer. It is. It basically had the principal photography... Um, after that was completed, it was all about the grounds of the Bates Motel and the glimpse of the shower scene and things like that. Because Janet Lee wasn't available to shoot the teaser, Hitchcock instead deferred to her co star, Vera Miles, who played Leela, her sister, uh, kitted out in a wig to more closely resemble Lee. So, yeah, Janet Lee is actually not in that trailer. It is um, Vera Miles. So, yeah, six and a half minutes um Hitchcock now this will fit in later on Hitchcock actually toyed with the press about the um identity the true identity of Norman Bates uh sorry of Norma Bates um so he kind of took a lot of pleasure in in building up who Norma Bates was so he had a chair for the actress who was playing Mrs Bates constantly displayed on set during shooting um so it meant that sort of the people on set already were spreading rumors about who was playing Norma Bates. He started um, saying that all these actresses would be playing her like uh, Dame Judith Anderson and um, all these other sort of, all these other women that he was casting for the role he was making out, you know, it's this, it's this big character that she's the killer. And of course we find out at the end, she isn't it's a skeleton but he toyed all the way through as it wasn't until people actually sat down and watched the movie when it first premiered everyone assumed some big actress was playing norma bates was playing the
1: mother um but she wasn't that's fantastic i love that i love the the fact that he (laughs) toyed with people for so long
0: yeah he was just saying oh this actress has won the part oh actually no we're gonna go with this actress instead so everyone's like oh wow great okay this is cool (laughs) it's like a skeleton at the end an emaciated corpse (laughs) brilliant um so hitchcock now hitchcock was the first to troll he was the first one trolling the censors um so basically of course the hayes code which was you can't have bare breasts you can't have genitals you can't have murder on screen this kind of this code that was going on in film beforehand the hayes office a objected to, to Psycho, of course, because, you know, it's crazy, and to the brief presence of Janet Lee's breasts in the final cut of the film, um, Hitchcock was like, mm, yep, yeah, I'm going to get one over on you guys. So he he was told he couldn't have this, but you couldn't have, you know, any any nakedness in this film. So he waited and sent the same print of the movie back to the office, the one that had already been rejected. So, you know, you can't have boobs. He sent it back to the office a few days later without making any edits whatsoever to the film. The censors obviously didn't bother watching it, being like, oh, he made our edits. Great. And they passed it. <laughs> so he was like, yeah, I'll make your changes. Definitely. Yeah, I'll do all your changes. And he sent it back. And your changes, made changes have been made. It's done. <laughs> no. I promise. Exactly. Um, and actually, Janet Lee was not naked in the film. So it was actually the risque shots were performed by Playboy cover girl Marley Renfro. So it wasn't Janet Lee, but um, the film censors—they managed to pass a film that they shouldn't have passed because they couldn't be bothered, obviously, to watch it a second time around um, This is kind of That's a cool amazing. one. I'm going to get on. T- it's cool. I'm going to get onto the the true story behind Psycho next, but I'll just tell you very quickly um, two more things. Norma Bates' dialogue, so when you hear mother talking to Norman, um, it's actually three voices mixed together to create that kind of ghostly, weird sound. So the voices of Paul Jasmine, Virginia Gregg, and Jeanette Nolan. So it gave her a kind of uncanny, ambiguous voice. So
1: three of them together, which is kind of awesome. Wow. That is kind of awesome. And it really is a really eerie voice. So Really eerie voice.
0: So... Twice, so two things I mentioned earlier on, the performance, Sam's performance, so the boyfriend at the beginning, he's such a dick, (laughs) he makes you go, oh my god, this is just awful, and then of course the psychiatrist scene towards the end of the movie that's an exposition dump. Hitchcock hated both of those. So he hated John Gavin's performance as Sam. Uh, He would refer to poor old Gavin. He'd refer to him as the stiff due to his frustration with (sighs) Gavin's cold, detached acting method. (laughs) And um, Hitchcock basically started de-emphasizing. Yeah, but he started de-emphasizing Gavin's role by shooting um, the back of Sam's head. (laughs) quite a lot so he had more <laughs> janet lee in the back of sam said because he was like i've had enough of this so the crew started going oh wow he really doesn't like this performance and he hated the exposition dump as well um he agreed to shoot it because the studio wanted to give audiences the more of the background about norma bates and norman bates and they couldn't obviously show it all on screen whereas Hitchcock wanted to leave it a bit more ambiguous about what had happened to Norma Bates um, which I think would have been more interesting but no they demanded he put this through so he didn't he didn't like it and of course now audiences I think were a bit more we're used to ambiguous endings. there weren't so many of them in cinema at the time so we're used to trying to work things out for ourselves. But audiences at the time apparently, according to producers, but I think producers always think audiences are idiots um, when they're not. But producers said, no, you need to explain this more. So that's why we got the um, exposition dub at the end. A little bit daft. Um, and last fact, the movie actually gave Hitchcock his final Best Director Oscar nomination. So yeah, um, he, he didn't actually um, win. He did receive the Honorary Oscar in 1968, but he had five nominations between 1941 and 1961. And Psycho was the last one quite apt really to go out with a bang but yes so he went out with a bang he definitely went out with a bang. a bang that's quite a way to go yeah so that was some some background about psycho um the film but now maybe we should go into the character of norman bates now norman bates both in the novel and in this 1960 adaptation he suffered you know quite a lot of abuse obviously a very dark troubled relationship with his mother um she preached to him a lot that sexual intercourse was a sin that women were all sluts and basically evil um yeah we're all terrible and the novel not so much the film but the novel suggests that maybe there was something slightly incestuous going on between mother and son you know a bit of an oedipus complex or actually it went beyond that um but basically yeah it was a uh, suggested there's a lot of stuff going on between mother and son, jealousy of other men, um, difficulty with the father. So you don't really you don't meet Norman's father, but basically Norman and his mother lived alone after Norman's father died. So this apparently built up this kind of dark, very troubled relationship between the two of them um so after committing the murders norman staged it like a murder suicide so he he murdered his mother in the novel and her lover he staged it like a murder suicide and he briefly went into hospital for shock and it sort of states kind of in the book really that in hospital he developed a split personality and he basically took on his mother's persona so that's why when he then meets women that he's attracted to Everything his mother used to say in life about how women are sluts and you should stay away from sex and don't go near women. I'm the only good woman in your life. That channeled through his relationships with women. So he kind of came up with this this, this personality. Now, interestingly, when Robert Block was actually writing the book, he had two years before been paying attention to another story that was going on all over the news in fact it sort of made it all over the world so it it was kind of um when you think about the film psycho it's mild compared to the real life horror that actually inspired it so in this is a bit weird but in 1957 (laughs) there was um life magazine we all know american life magazine featuring lots of different stories there was two stories that featured in the 2nd of december issue and robert block read this he'd also heard the story at the time but there was a story about jeremy bentham he's very well known here in the uk because actually he was a a philosopher and his body's been embalmed and displayed in university college london so i went to king's college london and our rivals are university college london and jeremy bentham was in a glass display cabinet his his um embalmed corpse is in the common room in ucl not
1: creepy at all in the slightest oh yeah not creepy
0: at all. I haven't walked past it going, oh, my God. Now, I think he's been moved now. I don't know where he is now. But but at the time, it featured this story about him. But the other story that featured was kind of about embalming and dead bodies as well. It featured a, a man born Edward Theodore Gein on August 27th, 1906. And it featured what he'd just done, his crimes. So he was born in Wisconsin. His parents were... Pretty, pretty mismatched. Um, he was quite a vulnerable young boy. And it's a bit like when you listen to things like um, about serial killers, like the Morbid podcast and stuff, and you hear about someone's history and you think, oh, poor kid. When you hear about Ed Gein, you think, wow, he did grow up in a very dysfunctional household. Poor kid. But then what he does and the crimes that are then featured in Life magazine that Robert Block then decided to write about, you don't feel so sorry for him. But it's and that's kind the of... thing,
1: though, is that you can, yeah, but... Like that's the thing, though, is that you can feel sympathy for the child, but that doesn't excuse what the adult did.
0: This is it, exactly. And so, Edgeen, the child, was brought up with his father, George, who was an alcoholic. Um, and that meant that he, he largely had a better relationship with his mother, Augusta, because he would kind of cling to her because he had no relationship with his father. So, Augusta, his mother, was a religious fanatic. Um, she was very, very oppressive um to him and his brother henry who was his older brother uh they were very close together so they bonded together very well but no matter how close they were it couldn't really sort of they couldn't really get away from this this matriarch who was puritanical she really like ridiculed her kids mocked and shamed them for every little thing they did saying they were ungodly they were awful um she ruled the home with an iron fist she was very 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 stern very conservative look on life. She would regularly preach about sin, carnal desire and lust to, to Ed Gein and his brother, Henry, while the father was like off in a drunken state. She apparently said to them that she was, she was an innocent woman. She was a good woman, but other women weren't. Who does that sound like? Um, so Ed Gein already was growing up in this household. Uh, they all moved in to Plainsfield, Wisconsin in 1915. Ed was actually only nine when they moved to a desolate farmland and he then rarely left that farm for any reason other than to go to school so he was very much with his mother all the time so everything that she would say really became ingrained in him um when his when he was 34 he was still living at home in 1940 uh, his father died And Henry was still at home as well. So they started picking up the slack and kind of trying to to look after the farm and get some odd jobs and things like that to support the mother because the mother was very, very stern with them, even even in her older age. And she demanded things so they would have to kind of work for her. Otherwise, they would get her wrath, basically. So in 1944, an accident took place, uh, a bizarre accident, where... Ed Gein and his brother Henry were burning brush on the family farm and the blaze apparently grew to such an uncontrollable proportion that Henry died. So in 1944, it ended up just being Ed and his mother left on the farm after Henry's death. But it's only after Ed's crimes, which we are about to go into, were discovered years later that people went, hold on, did Henry really die by accident in this blaze? Ed was apparently close to his brother. Yeah, but there are now rumours, did he actually murder his brother? Was it something to do with the relationship with his mother? No one really knows. No one will ever know. But there are rumours now that actually his brother didn't die of uh, an accident. He didn't die in an accident. So it meant that he and his mother became even more intertwined. He rarely ever went out. He had no friends, completely devoted to his mother. He never dated anybody. He I don't even think whether know whether he'd ever had sex or anything. Like we don't even need to think about that. But basically he was very, very under his mother's thumb. He, he kind of went off the rails a bit a year later, when his mother died, Augusta died. Um he lived alone in this large house that had been his family home he kept his mother's room spotless and untouched, presumably in an effort to repress the fact that she died. So the rest of the house was completely neglected. Now, guys, you can actually look up the crime scene photos of the Gein house. Uh, It's, I've never seen anything like it. There are piles of rubbish everywhere. I mean, absolute pitch black walls from dirt and windows, just filthy. Um, But the one room that stayed as it was, was his mother's room. But he'd started during this time, so he became very isolated and he started sort of fostering this interest in anatomy. He got lots of books on the subject. Um, he would pile up furniture, nondescript items through the house. It just the house was a mess and he was reading all these anatomy books. This was not a healthy, a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> um, but at the same time, as he was sort of psychologically breaking down, several Plainfield residents started going missing. Now, one of them was a woman called Mary Hogan who had actually um, owned somewhere called the Pine Grown Tavern, which is probably the only establishment that Ed Gein visited in town. So everyone knew him as a very quiet, quiet man. But um, And this was probably the only place he might have ever popped to. He didn't really socialize or do anything. But yeah, Mary Hogan, who ran it, disappeared without a trace, never to be found. Now, what people didn't realize... At the time, what was going on was he was developing uh, interest in anatomy. He'd started digging up corpses late at night.
1: That is not do. at all creepy or anything like that. <laughs> but it's what he does to the corpses that that is just gross. We're going to get to that.
0: He would start digging them up and taking them home to play with. So he was reading um magazines like S- something called Startling Detective, which was kind of like a pulp fiction magazine. And he was reading all these tales of cannibalism in the South Seas. So he'd take these corpses home and he was like, oh, I'm going to have fun with this. He would strip off the face and the scalp from each skull, taking to care to preserve the skin with oils. And he would actually pad it out like the features of the of the, the, the face and the scalp with rolled up newspaper and he'd hang the faces on the walls of his home to be worn later as masks. He would then make distinctive flesh-coined leggings from pieces of flayed leg and he'd wear the entire upper torso of a woman as an apron. And sometimes at night, he'd go outside his farmhouse, dressed in the whole ensemble, and dance around in the moonlight. <laughs> didn't didn't he also have, like, a belt made of nipples? Oh, we're going to get to this. I'm going to give you a list, guys. Honestly, Jess, you're going to freak oh. at the stuff that he actually made. Like, there's a lot of stuff. So... so will so basically when when police went to the house they found everything and you just won't believe it so this is what he's doing I didn't mean to laugh when I said he starts around in the moonlight but the image of that is ridiculous I'm sorry it's terrible what he did digging up corpses dreadful violating corpses and also
1: it, it it really is but it's also um it's it just shows you like how many um villains and serial killers and just fucked up um, people in horror movies, um, not just Psycho, that uh, Ed Gein inspired. Because who does that remind you of? The dancing in a skin suit. Oh, hello, Silence of the Lambs. Right?
0: I'm thinking Silence of the Lambs. Am I right? Good, yeah. I was thinking yep, that's yep. not the only one, is it? Yeah, yeah. No. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre Yep. with Leatherface.
1: There's so Despite many, so many, so many, so many people that, that have been inspired by the eccentricities the awfulness that is it gain yeah it's horrendous
0: absolutely horrendous um it's quite freaky so people at the time obviously nobody knew what he was doing while he was dancing around in the moonlight uh when his crimes then came to light which we're about to get to townspeople who kind of knew him because of course they didn't see him that much because he was mainly on the farm they said that he seemed sort of quite shy he was like a local handyman really he was doing odd jobs he'd help fixing a you know fixing fences and he'd help sort of doing a spot of babysitting he used to enjoy babysitting Jess
1: what? The, yep. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around that can you imagine <laughs> having Ed Gein babysit your kids like what the fuck? but it's like John Wayne Gacy being a really good clown like
0: and people loving him like no one knew that he murdered young boys and and buried them in his house everyone thought he was this kind of cute cute chubby clown
1: Have you, you, know, have you seen? He's a nice guy until you actually see photos of of um of, of him in his full clown get up i mean he was a pretty scary looking clown
0: oh he's horrifying but i suppose clowns can be quite scary can't the clowns they
1: clowns are scary so
0: you kind of would be like oh okay but it's the same thing so ed gein he was popular with kids kids liked him he would tell he wouldn't tell the younger kids these ghost stories so he actually had this moral compass of not terrifying younger children but he would tell older kids uh, morbid ghost stories and that his house was haunted and things like that and they loved him because they thought he was fascinating but they didn't you know nobody would know they thought he sort of pay, parents thought he was a little bit um maybe simple probably the politest word to use but they thought he was completely harmless because he was good to children. As far as I've read, he didn't do anything to children. I think I don't I don't think he did anything to to living children. Um he didn't hurt them, but it definitely something not right there. Um but
1: nobody knew that he was a cunning but it's just so weird like how many of these serial killer murderer awful people have this weird moral code where they will yes. do things to adults and not kids or they won't hurt animals or they won't kill a certain victim because it's against their moral code. That's it exactly. It's weird, isn't it?
0: It is this moral compass of, I, you know, my moral compass is very fixed on this direction. It may go, go slightly skewing off in the other direction for this topic, but for this one, I'm going to be a good person. It's weird. It's very strange. Um, And Ed Gein had this, from the sound of it, he had exactly that. So no one knew what was going on. They just thought he was a little bit bit simple. But on the morning of November the 16th, 1957, in Plainfield, the hardware store owned by Bernice Warden, somebody noticed that the hardware store's truck had been driven out from the rear of the building at about 9.30 a.m., so the hardware store didn't have very many customers the entire day, but some area residents believed it was because of a deer hunting season. But when Bernice Warden, the owner of the hardware store, when her son, Deputy Sheriff Frank Warden, entered the store around five o'clock, he found that the store's cash register was open, there were bloodstains on the floor, and his mother had disappeared. So Yeah, she completely disappeared, and it was left in obviously a bit of a state that the cash register open and blood on the floor so frank of course freaked out that she's a sheriff and this is his mother so he told investigators that the evening before his mother disappeared ed Gean had actually been in the store and that he was said to have returned the next morning for a gallon of antifreeze and there was a sales slip for that gallon of antifreeze and it was the last receipt written by bernice on the morning she disappeared so ed was in that shop on that morning of the the 16th of november the evening of the same day, Ed Gein was arrested at West Plainfield Grocery Store. So they, they caught him very quickly within a few hours of, of Frank realizing that his mother was missing. And the county and the uh, Washara, I think, I've, I hope I've said that right. Any any of our lovely American um, listeners might be able to tell me otherwise. But I think it's the Washara County Sheriff's Department searched Ed Gein's farm to try and find Bernice. What they found horrified them. So they found poor Bernice's decapitated body in a shed on Edgeen's property. Oh god, she was hu- dude, she was hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes at her wrist. Now, her torso had been, I forgive the expression here but it, it is what I've read in several publications of this. She was dressed out like a deer, if you know what that means. So she was opened up. Oh lord. Up. Yep. Um
1: she'd been Very- shot with a I was just gonna say very Texas chainsaw massacre.
0: Isn't it though? Isn't it? It's it's horrendous. She'd been shot with a, a twenty-two caliber rifle and the mutilations were made after her death. So he didn't butcher her while she was alive. I mean I suppose there's one one um, comfort from that, but yeah, he he mutilated her after death. Do you wanna hear the list of what the authorities found in this house? Let's hear it. It's extensive. It's extensive. Whole human bones and fragments, a waste basket made of human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on the bedposts of Ed Gein's bed, female skulls, some with the top sawn off, used as bowls, some of them were used as bowls, like for food and shit, a corset made from a female torso skinned from the shoulders to the waist, leggings like we mentioned before made from human leg skin masks made from the skin of female heads now did we tell you not or not that mary hogan had disappeared they found mary hogan's face mask in a paper bag
1: oh, they Lord. found mary
0: hogan's skull in a box so they they knew that he killed her they found benice warden's entire head in a burlap sack her heart in a plastic bag which was put in front of Gein's potbelly stove so they were thinking like was he going to cook it this is horrible Nine vulvae, so nine vulva, nine vaginas, found in a shoebox. Nine vaginas in a shoebox. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, a young girl's dress and the vulvas of two females judged to have been about 15 years old. That's horrible.
1: Fuck sakes. A,
0: yep. Now, as you mentioned, Jess, as Jess mentioned before, a belt made from female human nipples. I mean, just, there's so much here that you could just be like, the fuck? Um, four noses, a pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. Lips. A pair of lips used for a drawstring for a window shade. That's insane. A lampshade made from the skin of a human face and fingernails from female fingers that had been pulled off. So you can imagine how these poor uh, sheriff's department crew felt going into this house you think it's bad enough that you're going in to find a dead woman and then you find all of this as well
1: house of fucking horrors
0: house of fucking horrors this is I mean no one could dream this up of course this is why now movies and books and things have used Ed Gein as as a a blueprint because this shit's real you couldn't dream this up this has to come from
1: reality because you couldn't imagine it I wish you could see the look on my face because I've I've watched all the Ed Gein documentaries and I've I've seen the photos of the house and everything. But every time, just hearing the list of shit, it's still still a shock. So I, you know I wish that you could see my face right now. <laughs> I'm sure my jaw hit the floor.
0: I'm picturing especially it, Jess. That- got a
1: beautiful face.
0: I'm picturing it,
1: especially that shoebox. Why the lampshade the shoe face? Box of the shoebox?
0: vaginas Ugh. or vulva you know vulva it's just bizarre it's it's and then to, to do that to, the thing that i have is obviously he didn't hurt children when they were alive that we know of that we know of um but the fact it's terrible digging up women and men and things there's something about digging up young girls though that puts an extra appalling slant on it it's like young young women and children
1: but that's like, but that's also that. But that's the thing, though. I mean, he was he was doing the whole grave robbing thing for how how many years, like how long before he actually started murdering people. So how long before he started murdering young girls? This is the thing. This is it because it builds, doesn't it?
0: They get a taste Mm -hmm. for it. He'd already started murdering women and several people disappeared, never to be found. So there are other people that just Disappeared that people sort of just gone missing or run off that could easily have been Edgeen's victims, and people won't know because at the times forensics, etc., it's harder to determine. So we know that Mary Hogan was definitely one of his victims, and of course, Bernice, um, but we d- others we don't know. So when he was questioned, um. Oh, actually, just to let you know, all those artifacts that were found, so all of the human skin things, they were photographed at the state crime laboratory because they needed them, obviously, for evidence, and then decently disposed of because, of course, they, they didn't feel it was right to hold on to them as evidence in that way. I mean, it's, it's pretty grotesque, um, and it's terrible because they are people's bodies. It's Corpses violated. It's terrible. Uh, funnily enough, we've actually got – not funnily enough, that's the wrong terminology – we've got a case – I don't know, Jess, if you've heard about it over here at the moment – of a man um, in the UK, he's been found to, not only did he murder two young women in 1980s, he raped and murdered them. He's been found to have violated at least over a hundred corpses in a mortuary that he worked at as an electrician. It's a court case going on at the moment. Um what and the it's, actual yeah. fuck? He's a guy, he's a British guy. I'm not going to name him because he's such a horrible monster. I do know his name, but you can look it up guys. He's a, a, a vile bastard, but he is just um it's a trial court case going on at the moment and he has violated the corpses of people as young as nine through to the age oh of a hundred.
1: No And
0: they're just victims that have been proven. And he's done this for decades, decades. So God knows how many people he's done. But so we've got to, i mean we there's also um the thing going on at the moment that because he murdered two women and he's admitted to that, I think they're now wondering what else has he done? Because, of course, just as you said, just as Jess said, where does it stop? When you do something like that, where does it stop? When you get the taste for something, where yeah. does it end? He committed these murders in the 80s, he's admitted to. We're now in the 2020s. What else could he possibly in, have done?
1: Yeah, within 40 years, you can't tell me that he he killed people and then decided that that was it, I'm done killing. Exactly.
0: So, you know, we've got, we, there are people like this popping up still. And that's the thing. As many horror films as we watch, we love our horror at the Witchery Podcast. But as many horror films as we watch, there's nothing as more horrific than real life. Nothing. And nothing more horrific than these kind of crimes. So when he was questioned, Ed Gein told investigators that between 1947 and 1952, he made as many as 40 nocturnal visits to three local graveyards to exhume recently buried bodies while he was in, he claims, days like states. He knew what the fuck he was doing. Come on, whether he was insane or not, you still—if you're actually managing to get out of bed, go out, and dig up bodies, there's some lucidity there. Sorry, even if you are mentally unbalanced, there's still lucidity there. On about thirty of those visits, he apparently came out of the daze and inverted commas, and left the grave in good order and returned home empty-handed. But they didn't believe this because he had so many body parts around. Like he'd done this a lot of times. Um,
1: so, so was he, like, living in a daze in his house for, like, years that he just didn't notice the fucking lips as the, the, the thing for the lampshades or the human face masks or, or, you know?
0: Well, this is the thing. How much of a daze was it? Because much like Norman Bates, there was some calculation here and some fixation on his mother. So you've got Norman Bates, who does these murders dressed as his mother... You've got Ed Gein digging up the bodies of women, middle-aged women who were recently buried, he thought resembled his mother. So he would take the bodies home and tanned their skins to make his paraphernalia. He made them out of women who looked like his mother. He admitted that. That is so... n-
1: That is disturbing on so many different fucking levels
0: so many different levels and
1: so he, he admitted it I mean
0: he, he said he admitted he stole from nine graves from local cemeteries and he led investigators to their locations but I, I think despite the fact they sort of managed to prove yes it was these graves etc I think they were still thinking what else has he done um and of course we'll never know because there are people that disappeared that have never been found um so he robbed the graves soon after the funerals so they managed to kind of ascertain who, who these people were um and He would sort of return, he'd returned rings and some other body parts. This was the weirdest thing. He would return some stuff to the graves in some kind of odd respect motive mission. Like he would take what he needed, but then he would return other stuff to the graves. That's weird. It's twisted. Again, we're talking about the moral compass. Like you said, you know, Jess, it's the moral thing of you'll do some things, but you won't do other things yeah it's just weird and twisted and you know slightly fucked up if we want to get into fucked up here is some more norman bates-esque um Gein moments for you soon after his mother's death taking these body parts Gene began to create a woman's suit that he would become his mother in he could become his own mother he would crawl into her skin literally so he would take these, these parts of women, put them together to make it something that resembled his mother, and he would wear it. Gein denied having sex with any of the bodies he exhumed, saying that they smelt too bad. So I think there are rumors that he was a necrophiliac. Uh, they can't really be proven. He never admitted to that. But he admitted to eventually sh- the shooting death of Mary Hogan, the tavern owner, who was missing from 1954. And of course, then they found her head in the house in, in 1957. But he actually denied memory of the details of her death later on. But at the time, he admitted to her, to her murder, and he admitted to Bernice's murder. So a 16-year-old um, family friend, really, who were sort of friends of Ed Gein, though he didn't really have friends that were kind of on good, you know, good polite terms babysitting all that stuff who attended ball games and movies with him reported that Ed Gein kept shrunken heads in his house now Gein had said that he got these relics from the Philippines who they were sent by a cousin who'd served on the islands during World War II so this kid would be like oh you've got shrunken heads in your house they weren't from the Philippines they weren't these these war paraphernalia which is still disgusting and terrible by the way guys but they were actually the corpses that he'd been digging up. He'd peeled off the faces and the masks and put them around his house. So people saw this shit when they went into his house.
1: And that's all they noticed. They didn't notice the lampshade made of like a human face or uh, the lips on the the blinds or any of that other shit. (laughs) Or the faces on the the wall.
0: Yeah, the nipples, you know, nipple belts. The chair made of human skin. Him dancing around in the moonlight, dressed up in skin. <laughs> um, yeah. No, apparently they didn't. But anyway, so this was seen. So, of course, everyone was pretty pissed off, particularly the sheriff's department with uh, Ed Gein. So he was uh, assaulted by a, a sheriff, one of the, the was, uh, oh, I can't pronounce this. I'm so sorry to my American friends. Washara County Sheriff, Arch um, Schley, assaulted Gein by banging his head and his face into a brick wall. I mean, can you blame him? After his initial confession, um, was ruled inadmissible because of that. So because his initial confession to the murders happened around the time that Art bashed his head into a wall, it was like, nah, we we can't, we can't take this seriously now. Yeah. So, um, I think many who knew that sheriff said that he was completely traumatized by what he was dealing with, with Ed Gein's crimes. I can't blame him. I would be, I'd probably want to kill Ed Gein myself. Um, And so, because of the fear of having to testify and stuff, he actually... He died of heart failure, this poor sheriff. A few years later, in 1968, aged only 43, just before Ed Gein's trial. They said because he was so traumatised because of everything he'd heard and and the assault and everything, he, he died of heart failure. They think it probably killed him. So, one of his friends said he was a victim of Ed Gein as surely as if he'd been butchered. Jeez. So, I mean, you can't... Not that I ever ever condone violence but you can understand if there is somebody listening to these crimes and they're hearing them and they're seeing skin bodies being dug up you kind of can't maybe blame someone's anger taking over in that case you know not yeah, that I can... ever condone violence but you know
1: but it's... but that's it you can you can understand um just the sheer horror that that they must have seen and experienced and heard um I can only really, yeah you, you can you can understand you can't it's it's not saying that you are condoning the violence but you're you're understanding where it's where it's coming from exactly because it's horrendous it's it's it's
0: absolutely abhorrent what what Ed Gein did so in 1957 as this was all you know going down robert block was a moderately successful thriller writer living just 40 miles away from Ed Gein's home um he heard all about this stuff on the news he then read life magazine and he sort of became quite fascinated he said well there's a story here writers for the most parts didn't do gross things in those days you could zing the reader with one line and then get out and he thought well this story this is something that that people are going to be interested in so um not, at this point no publishers publishers had dared sort of print any novels that had even maybe a third of the crimes that Ed Gein committed in these novels so Block was like okay I can't write a book about Ed Gein but I can use this basis for a character. So he started writing Psycho and he was sort of started blending the idea of a motel and a shy, as Ed Gein was seen, you know, sort of seemingly innocuous man having a secret life and a mother fixation in this motel. Um, and so he wrote it over six weeks in 1958. Um, he said, the story wrote itself I came up with his being a motel keeper because of easy access to strangers. What if he committed these crimes in an amnesiac f- fugue? Sorry, I probably pronounced that wrong. With an- with another personality taking over. Let's say he has a thing about his mother. Let's say he has a thing um, about his mother and his mother is dead. But he imagines she's still alive. That he became his mother while committing crimes. Then I thought, but wouldn't it be nice if, he- if she was present in some form? And that's when I came up with the notion that he preserved her body. So he really used a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of similarities with Ed Gein here. So there's close parallels, like you wonder where the facts finish and and Psycho takes over. So there's no evidence that Ed Gein disturbed his own mother's grave, by the way, nor that he practiced taxidermy like Norman Bates did. But of course, Norman Bates practicing taxidermy is kind of a a more innocent version (laughs) of what Ed Gein did really with body parts pretty um, much it's
1: uh, hell of, like I'd rather go with the taxidermy than um Ed Gein's version <laughs> pretty much pretty
0: much um Gein told psychiatrists he couldn't remember any of the details of murders that finally convicted him um and that sort of is similar with with Norman Norman it's the personality of the mother that takes over this split personality so it's going into this daze-like state that's what Ed Gein kind of claimed he went into um So Ed Gein, interestingly, admitted that it must have been him who was responsible, unlike Norman, who couldn't really admit it, because he did claim to have heard his mother talking to him for about a year after she died. He said that she was good in every way. So he he didn't blame his mother for the murders, but he said that he could hear her talking to him. And in reality, of course, we know that she wasn't good in every way. She was a Bible bashing kind of tyrant who really kept him like kind of ruined his life really kept him on the farm wouldn't let him date wouldn't let him do anything um and called all women harlots and sinners much like norma bates does so um norman bates actually in the book is more middle-aged overweight and balding whereas you've got in the film anthony perkins who's young and and handsome you know very sweet looking kind of guy um so there's a bit of a difference there but he used a lot of ed Personality, the mother fixation, and the crimes in Psycho, of course, that then became the film. So, at the stage of kind of going through the crimes, psychiatrists who were still assessing Gein while Block was actually writing the book, said Gein had that schizophrenic or split personality, but it wasn't the mother that came out, um, but that he had some other other split personalities going on that took over, creating this days like state. But the local community were just livid and just basically calling him a monster because he'd stolen from graveyards. He disrupted, you know, their family members' graves. He apparently, these rumours now going, because, of course, we found the heart of Mary Hogan in front of the the potbelly stove. Rumours started going around that he did eat a lot of the body parts as well as had sex with them, but he's denied both. As I said earlier on, he denied that he was a necrophiliac and he denied eating the victims, but it's never really been proven that he didn't do it. it's never been proven he did but never been proven he didn't
1: um, i mean the, yeah he said that uh, he wasn't a necrophiliac because the body smelt too too badly but yeah he'd wear them so you know just well exactly so he what's was the fine difference to his entire body yeah what's the difference between yeah, yeah. you're gross 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 gross
0: and of course, you know, Ed Gein didn't seem a threat. So this is why people were so shocked. They thought he was a bit simple, but they didn't think he was a threat. And so Robert Bloch said when he was writing Psycho, that also really inspired him. It's the idea of a, a murderer operating in a small town like Plainsfield, Wisconsin, just like the Bates Motel operating from this small, small family run, supposedly hotel, under the noses of everyone else. And they seem harmless. They're an outsider, but they're not considered a threat. They might be, seem a bit strange, but yet innocuous. So Bloch explained in the documentary entitled Ed Gein, the Ghoul of Plainfield, Thus the real-life murderer was not the role model for my character Norman Bates. Ed Gein didn't own or operate a motel, he didn't kill anyone in a shower, He and he didn't stuff his mother, keep her body in the house, dress in a drag outfit, or adopt an alternative personality there were functions and characteristics of Norman Bates and Norman Bates didn't exist until I made him up out of my own imagination, which I add is probably the reason so few offer to take showers with me. But as he then said, uh, this isn't a quote, this is just a, a sort of attributed that there would be no Norman Bates without Ed Gein. Because, of course, the similarities about the mother, fixation with the mother, about the fixation with with effectively taxidermy, except with Ed Gein, it's it's human taxidermy, and this sort of outsider thing. He took all of those elements, but he did use his own imagination to create Norman Bates, but there'd be no more Norman Bates without Ed Gein. Um The reality is that Ed Gein, he was arrested, of course, after everything happened. His court case um, went to trial um, and he actually ended up spending the rest of his life in a mental institution until he died from cancer in 1984. So he spent the rest of his life locked up after that. Um, he was actually, he'd been found clinically insane and unfit to stand trial. So that's why he was in a secure institution. So he'd sort of, lots of trials had gone on, but he was declared insane. But there is this thing about the lucidity he had to do these crimes. Though, like Bates, he was going in and out of this daze sort of splits personality and was he schizophrenic, etc. He still managed to operate normally in many other aspects of his life. He'd go and babysit. You do wonder where's the line between insanity and sanity. Insanity and just evil.
1: Yeah, it raises all sorts of questions.
0: Um... But yeah, he became sort of a bit of a a bit of a a cult icon. Unfortunately, Ed Gein, um, and the scariest thing about him, according to Robert Block, and kind of something that Hitchcock mentioned, was his apparent ordinariness. As Hitchcock mused, he had the banality of evil. So a bit like when you look at other serial killers, like in the UK, we had Dennis Nilson, who would bury young young men under the floorboards in his flat and and flush body parts down the toilet and, and cook them. Jeffrey Dahmer as well was kind of unassuming. John Wayne Gacy was a popular clown. they people that sort of, it's, it's the banality of evil. They seem, you know, they're a bit of an outsider, but they're normal, boring people in many ways. And they do these horrific crimes. So at the end of the day, um, you never really know who you're living next door to. And you never really know if you stop at a hotel who is running that hotel um it's you know it's pretty horrendous so despite being demolished thrill seekers and tourists flock to the site of Ed Gein's secluded home you can actually see images of it so if you go on the internet and have a look at Ed Gein's, um arrest there's arrest footage of him there's footage of the house on the day that he's arrested so you see photos of what a state it's in and then um later on you can see images of the house that's been totally demolished and in 1958 the car that was used to transport his exhumed corpses and um, was sold to a carnival owner called bunny gibbons and gibbons charged 25 cents per photo with the ghoul car so you could go and have your photo taken with ed Gein's car which is pretty macabre and gross um ed Gein's grave on the family lot became a bit of a tourist haven which is quite grotesque people would actually chip away his, his gravestone and eventually it was completely vandalised and then stolen entirely in the year 2000 so
1: what is wrong with people exactly what
0: is wrong with people um, so that is the story guys of Psycho based on the crimes of Ed Gein not entirely Norman Bates Ed Gein copy copy but it a huge basis for the character of Norman Bates,
1: just wow. and influenced just, all the wow. at the time. I, just Ed Gein is a whole bunch of fucked upness.
0: Um, he is. Just he is indeed. Yeah. So that's it. Now, guys, I'm going to give you some learn from the best and some obscure film club. So learn from the best. Watch 78 slash 52. So that's the documentary I mentioned earlier on. Um, You know about the 78 uh, different camera angles and the 52 cuts. That's the documentary all about that shower scene. So it's about the man behind the curtain. So about Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho, and the screen murder that profoundly changed the course of world cinema. Read... Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho by Stephen Ribello. So it's the story basically about the history of of the making of Psycho from its grisly concept about Ed Gein as well mentions to the dramatic aftermath of the film. Uh, Ribello basically takes us behind the scenes, going through Hitchcock's private files, in-depth interviews with the stars, writers and technical crew. And it gives a unique and unparalleled view of the master at work. And number three for I Learn From The Best, watch Ed Gein, the real psycho so that was premiering on discovery plus I believe you can find it online it's uh, made by Steve Shippey a paranormal investigator who heard about the infamous proto-serial killer and how he's still haunting the town of Plainsville Plainsfield sorry that he terrorized in real life so Steve invites psychic medium Cindy Kaza to probe the inner darkness of Ed Gein and they go on a bit of a hunt so yeah watch that <laughs> um our obscure film club got four films for you number one you got to have a Hitchcock classic as well. You Go have for to. one that came out 3 year- you have to, don't you? Come on. Mm-hmm. Go for one that came out 3 years later in 1963, Try the Birds. So about a wealthy San Francisco socialite who pursues a potential boyfriend to a small northern California town that slowly takes a turn for the bizarre when birds of all kinds suddenly begin to attack people. Stars of course Tippy Hedren and it's based on the Daphne du Maurier story. Number 2, Watch Orphan from 2009. You've seen Orphan, haven't you, Jess? I have. It's brilliant film. Uh, a married couple with a rocky past. Oh, Sorry, what were you going to say? I was going to say it's completely twisted and fucked up and I love it. It's, it's brilliant. Um, a married couple with a rocky past adopt nine-year-old Esther to fill the void created by a recently stillborn baby. It's very sad. However, Esther is not quite who she seems, so like Norman Bates, not exactly what you expect and things get crazy. Number three audition brilliant Japanese film from 1999 a widower takes an offer to screen girls at a special audition arranged for him by a friend to find him a new wife but when he falls for the sweet and gentle Asami he soon discovers she's not who she appears to be after all so it's another oh they're not Ooh, who you think they are that unfair. film's amazing it's have you seen audition
1: I haven't it's on my list
0: it's one of my favorites I saw it as a kid uh, as a young younger person and um yeah It's it's pretty horrific, but I love it. It's a brilliant film. Uh, And number four, Secret Window from 2004, starring Johnny Depp, based on a Stephen King story. Mort Rainey, a writer just emerging from a painful divorce from his ex-wife, funnily enough, is stalked at his remote lake house by a psychotic stranger and would-be writer who claims that Rainey has stolen his best story idea. But as Rainey endeavours to prove his innocence, he begins to question his own sanity. So all these films kind of has something to do with people not being who they say they are or not seeming to be who they are. Um, And yeah, a lot of uh, confusion and multiple personalities and all sorts. So very much feeding into the psycho psycho story. I'm going to throw a fifth one in there just for good measure. You all know it by now. But 1991's Silence of the Lambs. We all know Buffalo Bill <laughs> has <laughs> kind of a lot of origins in Ed Gein, but also other murderers like Ted Bundy and Ed Kempner. So he's obsessed with female human flesh and making suits out of his victim's skins, which is pretty much a direct nod to Ed Gein. So try those ones out for size, but just don't put any dead skin on. Please don't put any skin Please on. Please don't. Or don't don't flay any or dead bodies.
1: make a yep. belt out of nipples.
0: <laughs> don't do any of that shit. We don't need that, guys. We don't need that. So that's it. Psycho to Ed Gein. That's the story this week. An hour, 15 minutes, probably a little bit longer than anticipated, but there we go.
1: But wow, what a, a, just, I'm trying to just process everything that I've just listened to. It's like the Ed Gein story. I've heard it so many times and every single time it's horrific. And it like, just, it's heavy. (laughs) It's heavy. It is heavy. Um, it's,
0: it never gets easier. I always think because he's, there are so many body parts. I always forget that he's only known to have murdered two people. Um, but he obviously murdered more people, but he's only really ever been, he was, he was about to go to trial for the crime for those two crimes as well as the the digging up bodies. But I always feel like he murdered hundreds of people whenever I hear about him.
1: Yeah. But. Like you said, it's only two confirmed murders. Well, two murders yeah. that he's been linked to. I mean, the rest was all just body snatching, which is still fucking disturbing.
0: It's horrendous, horrendous guys, horrendous. But that's the story. Thank you so much for listening to me, Babble Jess, and everybody.
1: Thank you for thank you for taking us all through that. E, that was quite quite the ride. <laughs> Quite, quite
0: um, the, uh, quite the ride indeed. Just don't stop at any motels, guys. During this week, the next few weeks, don't do it. Don't do it to yourselves. You know, we're, we're we've got to be keeping our wits about us. You don't know, you don't know who you're dealing with. That's the scary thing about psycho, and that's the thing about some of those serial killers like Ed Gein.
1: You just you don't, don't really know. know what's going on. Yeah, you you don't know who you can trust, and like you don't know people. Um, it's just a reminder of how fucked up people can be and I definitely need to go watch some Gilmore Girls now as a bit of a palate cleanser um, <laughs> I know I was wow, like just yeah. wow
0: <laughs> I feel the same I'm like what's? can I put some Shit's Creek on might have to do yeah. some Shit's Creek because I just got to have a bit of David making me laugh bit of David and Moira I think I need it
1: good plan Shit's Creek's <laughs> always a good plan
0: so that's it thanks for listening guys another episode coming your way next week
1: thanks for listening and um, have a have a good day heathens
0: good day heathens or good night depending on when you're listening bye everybody
1: bye